0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talise, and I am co host of the channel along with Carrie Figder. In our bi monthly podcast, we talk with philosophers about their newly published books. Today, I'll be talking with Professor Alan Buchanan about his new book, Better Than Human, which was published a few months ago by Oxford University Press. Alan Buchanan is James B. Duke Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Law at Duke University. Buchanan begins his book with the following observations. It's too late to just say no to biomedical enhancements. They're already here, and more are on the way. According to Buchanan, the question is how we should respond to these facts. Some philosophers want to pretend ...that we can just say no to enhancements, whereas others promote wild-eyed fantasies of a post-human technological utopia. In Better Than Human, Buchanan pursues the dual objective of criticizing both of these camps and then proposing a sensible middle way between them. Contending that there is no point to being anti-enhancement in any wholesale way... He seeks a view of biomedical enhancement that can effectively manage the moral risks inherent in the enhancement enterprise. Consequently, Better Than Human offers a philosophically compelling roadmap to the enhancement debates, while also sketching a realistic approach to the moral and political issues. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Alan Buchanan. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you doing today?
1: I'm fine, thank
0: you. Excellent. Um, Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy, and today uh, on New Books in Philosophy, I'll be talking to Alan Buchanan about his new book, Better Than Human, which was published a few months ago with Oxford University Press. Better Than Human is a concise and tightly argued book that addresses the moral and political issues surrounding emerging human enhancement technology, including biological enhancement technology. The book is lively and engaging, and in my view, uh, offers a thoroughly sensible uh, approach uh, to these important issues, so I recommend it highly. But before we get into our discussion of Better Than Human, Alan, why don't you take a few moments and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, thank you. Um, I started out in philosophy in a completely different area. I worked on Kant's metaphysics and epistemology, and then uh, one day the chairman of my department came in and said, uh, there's a chap." Uh, on the phone from a neonatal intensive care unit. I'm not sure exactly what that is. And he says he wants some ethical guidance. And uh, you're, you're sometimes think about ethics, don't you, Alan? Why don't you call him and talk to him? <laughs> well, I did. And I ended up uh, being an advisor uh, on a uh, needle, neonatal, neonatal intensive care unit uh, for ethical issues concerning severely uh, compromised newborns, uh, termination of treatment decisions. And, uh, I found this very fascinating and I started looking into the bioethics literature and I didn't find much that I agreed with. So I started writing and then uh, someone noticed my writing and I I was asked to be a staff philosopher for the President's Commission on Medical Ethics in the early 1980s uh, in Washington. And that got me further into bioethics uh, and uh, things just sort of took off uh, from there. There was never any really any planning about this. But always at the same time, I was working in uh, political philosophy. And I think it's been somewhat of an advantage for me in bioethics that I look at many issues from the standpoint of a political philosopher and tend to think in terms of institutions and in terms of power relationships. And I think that's uh, beneficial almost always in looking at bioethical issues. And I think that in this book that we're talking about, Better Than Human, that comes out pretty clearly. I think that um, most of the people who participated in the enhancement debate have not really been able to look at things very clearly from an institutional standpoint uh, or from a political standpoint, and they tend to think of it more in terms simply of individual ethics, where the individual is uh, making a decision uh, considered an abstraction from any sort of institutional context.
0: Right. Um, Can I ask, again, just a a little bit more uh, biographical information? Um, So one of the uh, really interesting things about your work, Alan, is um, its breadth in a way. So um, uh, you've done uh, really remarkable work in political philosophy, But also, um, you've done, in addition to the bioethics work, but you've also done stuff in international law and human rights law uh, and the concept of human rights and even some uh, issues in social epistemology. Do you see all of these issues as hanging together uh, around some central concerns, or
1: um, uh, do you see uh, looser relations between them? It's interesting. Uh, Often when I start working in a new area, I don't initially see much connection to what I've done before. But as time goes on, I see more and more connections, and uh, it's turned out to be very fruitful, I think. I think that my work in any of the areas you mentioned has benefited from work in other areas. I'd like to mention another aspect of my work that might not be apparent to some of your listeners. I've been fortunate to combine theoretical work with practical work, especially with uh, policy consultation, really at pretty high levels, uh, not just with the President's Commission on Medical Ethics in the 80s, but with all of the subsequent presidential medical ethics commissions and some other bioethics commissions that weren't presidential commissions. I've uh, played a role in all of them in one way or another as a a consultant or as a staff member, Uh, but also in the area of political philosophy, I've had the, the good fortune to actually engage with people in the real world who are making important decisions. I consulted with the transitional government of Ethiopia in 1993, the writing of the secession clause uh, in their new constitution. And I was asked to do that because I had written a book on secession. And I've also consulted with uh, the Council of Europe's High Commissioner on National Minorities on issues of self-determination and autonomy. I've consulted with the Canadian government Uh, on possible secession of Quebec and was asked to write a response to a Canadian Supreme Court ruling on that issue. And this has just been something that I I couldn't have anticipated at all when I went to graduate school in philosophy. When I was in graduate school in philosophy in the early 70s, there really wasn't much in the way of a, a developed field of practical ethics or applied ethics. And it was really almost unheard of for philosophers to have the kind of opportunities that I later came to have so uh, I' I guess you might say I have a uh, short attention span or <laughs> stimulation but both the breadth of philosophical topics that I've worked on and this back and forth move from the theoretical to the practical has has really made for an incredibly interesting career for me and and I've, I've, I can't say that I've done this out of a sense of uh, duty or or uh, try to promote the greater good it's just been a lot of fun
0: right well that's excellent and you know there's a lot of um talk in our profession about the need for philosophers to publicly engage and all the rest but um often that's just a lot of talk uh but not not in your case um which is which is uh quite refreshing so um let's turn to the book okay yes um so um I want to ask sort of a, a very general question before getting into the actual nuts and bolts of your, your positive views. So um, one of the tasks that you set for yourself in better than a human is in part to provide uh, for your reader, what we might call a roadmap to the debates over human enhancement. And it is a complex set of debates rather than just a single uh, 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 question. Um, and I, I was, uh was, uh, uh, sort of moved or or intrigued uh, by one of the claims very early uh, in the book uh, where you describe the debate uh, over human enhancement, not as between pro enhancement and anti enhancement, but rather between anti enhancement and anti anti enhancement views. Uh, And this, by the way, strikes me as uh, the right way to describe a lot of philosophical debates. Um, So uh, I I take it that you think that the debate, the debate has this structure, because uh as you say even on the first page of the book i'm quoting you here it's too late to just say no to biomedical enhancements so there's no uh um, uh, they're here it's not the kind of thing that we can in some simple way just say yes or no to um now it's a question of whether um the philosophically we think this set of phenomena that are here uh, uh is uh is a bad thing or if we think that it's not yet uh, clear that it's, it's um, uh, unequivocally uh, a bad thing. Um, so why don't we begin then with uh, you telling us a little bit uh, about the philosophical terrain of these debates.
1: Good. Uh, yes, you're right. I think it's, it's important to, to, to stress this point that I think that the real division in the debate is between anti enhancement people and anti anti enhancement people And the anti-enhancement people seem to uh, be advocating a kind of blanket rejection of biomedical enhancement technologies. Now, some of them are a little more nuanced. Uh, Perhaps Habermas is one of these. He restricts the blanket rejection perhaps to genetic alteration of human embryos for the sake of enhancement. But I think someone like Sandel and also Leon Cass. Are people who hold a more sweeping anti-enhancement view? They don't seem to think there are some kinds of biomedical enhancements that are permissible or perhaps even good. They seem to reject the whole idea, the whole enterprise. And then I think the the other main parties to the debate uh, mainly are people who want to reject the view that no enhancements are permissible. They want to reject the blanket anti-enhancement view. And then they have different views about which sorts of biomedical enhancements under which circumstances might be permissible or not. Now, what I find problematic about the debate as it's structured in that way is first that I think that the anti-enhancement arguments are extremely weak, uh, that, in fact, the people who advance them don't seem to know the difference between advancing Considerations against enhancement or some forms of enhancement or some forms of enhancement in certain circumstances, on the one hand, versus arguments against enhancement, where an argument is a set of premises that culminates in the conclusion that enhancements or this kind of enhancement are wrong or morally impermissible. Instead, they just sort of raise some cons, some negatives, some concerns about enhancement. And then act as if they provided an argument against enhancement, an argument, in fact, for rejecting all modes of biomedical enhancement. On the other hand, the anti-anti-enhancement people uh, leave me unsatisfied as well, for the most part, because often they say things that, although they have the ring of truth and perhaps common sense, are not very action guiding. They say, "Well, it's wrong to reject all enhancements. Uh, sometimes enhancements." Uh, will be permissible. Uh, The anti-enhancement people are right that we need to be cautious. So the right thing to do is just to go slow and uh, discern which enhancements are appropriate and which aren't. But then without really getting very concrete about what that means. So what I wanted to do was both, on the one hand, make a very strong conclusive case that the anti-enhancement position is wrong, that it's wrong to reject Biomedical enhancements across the board. But on the other hand, to go further than the usual anti anti enhancement positions and say more clearly which kinds of biomedical enhancements under which circumstances would be problematic and which wouldn't, and give some concrete uh, advice that is, is more specific and helpful than just sort of general cautionary remarks to the effect don't go too far, go slowly. Proceed with caution. And one of the things that I I think uh, is valuable in the book is that it really does provide some specific cautionary heuristics, uh, some rules of thumb about how to be responsible in pursuing what many people take to be the most problematic and risky kinds of biomedical enhancements, namely those that involve uh, altering the genomes of human embryos. So that's the way I see the anti-enhancement versus anti-anti-enhancement debate. And I must say, and I'm, I'm pretty straightforward about this in the book, I find the current state of debate very disappointing. I mean, this is an incredibly important issue. And it's an issue not just for philosophers, but for all thinking human beings. And as you said earlier... Enhancements are already upon us and more are on the way, so we can't evade the issue. But the quality of the debate has been, I think, very low in many cases. And I I think in particular with the anti-enhancement positions, uh, the the arguments just aren't there. There are, as I said, considerations, but there's nothing like well-thought-out arguments. And it's a little bit of a puzzle as to why some of the anti-enhancement authors like Sandel have apparently been so influential or that why their work has been accepted as as valid by many people. And I think it, it has to do not so much with the quality of the arguments, which I think is low, but with the fact that people have very uh, uneasy feelings about technologies generally and perhaps about the, the, the rapid pace of change in, in modern life. But they especially have uh, serious concerns about biomedical technologies. And I think somehow uh, Sandel and Cass and others have tapped into those concerns. I don't think they've represented them very clearly or constructively, but there really is something there. And uh, I've tried to exhaust different interpretations of what the anti-enhancement people say. To try to get at what's really bothering people, and right. the readers will have to be to judge themselves how successful I've been about that. But I, I I don't want to convey any any idea that I think there are no problems here. I really think they are there are serious problems. My main concern in the book is to try to winnow out the bogus concerns, less serious concerns, and get at what the most serious concerns are, and state them clearly, and then try to offer some practical advice about how to cope with them
0: right right so um and, and i want to get to to talking about both um some of the specific diagnoses you offer uh of the anti-enhancement uh views and uh to talk a little bit about these uh rules of thumb uh for um managing the risks of of enhancement but let me ask one other sort of uh, more preliminary or, or general question um Could you say uh, something about the variety of enhancements and the distinctions that you think are worth making between enhancements of different kinds? It seems to me that um, uh, it's it's helpful. And in the book, uh, you, you do a lot of this work to get clear on the scope of the concept of an enhancement.
1: Good, good. I'm glad you brought that up. This is a good time to do that right at the beginning. Well, the definition of enhancement that I give is a pretty uh, widely used one. I don't think it's terribly controversial. The idea is that an enhancement is some uh, deliberate action aimed at producing an improvement in some existing human capacity, or perhaps more radically, even creating a new human capacity. Now, the thing to notice about this definition is, first of all, that it doesn't limit enhancements to biomedical enhancements. Biomedical enhancements, as I understand them, are uh, attempts to improve human capacities or perhaps create new human capacities through using biomedical technologies that act directly on the body or the brain. Mm -hmm. Now, there are other kinds of enhancements that aren't biomedical. I also distinguish between different modes of enhancement, Uh, and and different types of enhancement. One type of enhancement that's very important is cognitive enhancement. That is improving the cognitive capacities of human beings. And I point out that we've been doing this for a long time before we had biomedical technologies. Literacy is a fantastic cognitive enhancement. It enables us to perform cognitive tests that we could never perform uh, before. Numeracy or mathematical uh, techniques are Also, another very important cognitive enhancement. And you can view science as an enterprise, as an institutionalized enterprise, as a kind of collective enhancement device. I think it's important to keep this in mind because sometimes people, I think, go a bit off the rails by making the mistake of thinking that biomedical enhancements are something entirely new, forgetting that much of what we call human progress has been a matter of getting new enhancements of one kind or another. So that's the first thing. Now, I mentioned that there are modes and types of enhancement. By types of enhancement, I mean uh, enhancements that produce different categories of increases in capacities, like cognitive enhancements would be one, affective enhancements, enhancements that Improve our emotional capacities or our motivational capacities would be another. Of course, there can be uh, physical enhancements, enhancements of stature or of physical endurance or uh, uh, speed or dexterity. And there can be uh, enhancements of our resistance to diseases uh, and perhaps eventually enhancements of our capacity for living longer. So those are a bunch of different types of enhancements. And then there are different modes of enhancements. For a particular type of enhancement, like cognitive enhancements, there can be several modes. As I mentioned, there are low-tech modes of cognitive enhancement, like literacy. But among the biomedical modes of cognitive enhancement, there is the administration of drugs, and we already have cognitive enhancement drugs. We've had them for some time. Caffeine is a cognitive enhancement drug. Nicotine is a cognitive enhancement drug. Now it turns out that uh, a fair number of students, especially at elite undergraduate institutions in the United States, are taking drugs that weren't designed for cognitive enhancement, but they do, in fact, produce cognitive enhancements. Uh, These are drugs that were initially developed to treat uh, attention deficit disorder, symptoms of Alzheimer's, dementia, and narcolepsy or uncontrolled going to sleep. Drugs in each of these three categories have been shown to have uh, improving effects on some cognitive tests in normal people, people who don't have narcolepsy or Alzheimer's or attention deficit disorder. But there are other modes of of cognitive enhancement that are possible. Uh, Perhaps there will be eventually genetically engineered uh, brain tissue implants, or there may be nanocomputer implants into the brain or interface technologies between the brain and computers. We already have those. In fact, uh, there are some uh, interesting experimental devices that have been developed mainly to help people who've served, who, who've suffered some sort of brain damage. Uh, uh, for example, uh, damaged to their visual centers their uh, or their optical nerves that are unable to see, and they can be given a kind of artificial Uh, substitute for uh, vision by connecting uh, computers appropriately to the brain. Uh, And I mentioned earlier a a much more radical kind of biomedical uh, enhancement mode, and that would be genetically altering human embryos so that as the embryo divides and subdivides and divides again, eventually the genetic changes that were engineered into the embryo are replicated in all the cells of the human body and uh, result in, in this case, perhaps cognitive improvements. So there are types of biomedical enhancement and modes of biomedical enhancement. There are non-biomedical enhancements and biomedical enhancements. I think once we begin to see these distinctions, it increasingly looks foolish to say uh, that we should reject all uh, enhancements or even all biomedical enhancements we have to be more fine-grained than that we have to look at the type and the mode and we have to look at the state of the technology how safe it is we have to look at the social and institutional context in which the technology would be applied and we may also have to look at the the values of the individuals involved
0: right right so this is very helpful and it does seem to me um that uh when we have um a set of phenomena that are so complex and there are so many distinctions at work that uh you're 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 almost guaranteed to be correct when you say there can't be uh it can't be correct to offer a wholesale yay or nay uh, uh to this very complex and complicated package of things that we've got to uh get our hands dirty in the trenches so let me um uh, turn to um, a couple of the diagnoses that you offer of uh, how the anti-enhancement position uh, has gained traction. Because I think that again, uh, if if we're talking about a very complex set of phenomena, uh, it's it's hard to to imagine a wholesale no or a wholesale yeah uh, uh, could possibly uh, foot the bill. Um, so. Um, one of the diagnoses that you offer um uh with respect to the the debate as such and one of the re- the, the respects in which you uh see the debate as uh disappointing is that you think that the especially the anti enhancement views uh are 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 sort of uh hampered um with what you regard as an in- inadequate grasp of evolutionary biology um and it seems that um uh, certain strands of the anti enhancement position draw on, you allege, uh, notions, for example, of nature that have at their core some pre Darwinian, uh, uh, commitments. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, about the role of, uh, getting a good grip uh, on evolutionary biology, uh, plays, uh, in improving the, the character of the debate?
1: Yes, thank you. Um, I mentioned earlier that. I think one distinctive contribution of the book is the focus on institutions and uh, providing a sort of political philosopher's perspective. The other main distinctive uh, valuable thing about the book, in my opinion, is that I really do take evolutionary biology seriously. And I think most people in the enhancement debate don't. And to give an idea of why I think it's so important to do that, I'd like to just quote uh, from Charles Darwin, in a letter to his friend Joseph Hooker. Great. And I'd like you to, uh, the listeners, to consider what the implications of this description of nature by Darwin, the father of modern biology, what, what the implications are for how we should think about the possibility of biomedical enhancement, even when the enhancements would in some way involve changing our nature or interfering with nature. Here's the quote from Darwin. What a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horridly cruel works of nature. <laughs> now, that's pretty strong stuff. Uh, we all remember the quote from Alfred Lord Tennyson about na- nature being red in tooth and claw. Well, right. Darwin says it's not just bloody, it's inept. Right. It's extremely inept. That's why Darwin really should be viewed as the person who dealt what should have been the death blow to the idea of intelligent design. He doesn't think that evolution produces intelligent designs. Uh, He thinks it's really quite a mess. Now, if you think of nature in that way, then the idea of changing nature or even changing our nature doesn't look so wildly irresponsible. On the other hand, if you have a pre-Darwinian view of nature, if you think that nature including human nature is somehow benign and that it's the work of a master engineer either god or evolution but understood in a kind of pre-darwinian way then you'll think of it as you know the works of nature the human organism as being these stable completed harmonious well functioning entities and then of course any proposal for changing that will look foolishly irresponsible. Right. But once you begin to realize just how flawed the works of nature are, including us, then at least it makes sense to take seriously the possibility that we might want to intervene in these natural processes and even intervene in some ways that could change our nature. Now, one of the things that I find interesting and in a way depressing about the enhancement debate is that although there's a lot of talk about nature and human nature, especially on the part of the anti enhancement people, this talk about nature and human nature is remarkably naive given how problematic these concepts are. And given the fact, especially with regard to the concept of human nature, that many intelligent people in the history of Western thought have said foolish and wrong-headed things about human nature. And yet you get people like Sandel and Cass and President Bush's Council on Bioethics, of which they're both members, talking as if uh, we know what human nature is. We have a kind of a priori access to it. We don't have to look to what science tells us about human nature and about human nature as part of uh, nature uh, as a whole. And instead you get these uh, rosy, teleological, pre-Darwinian notions of nature and human nature, and then that stacks the deck against enhancement of any kind because it makes it look as if someone who's proposing enhancement is a kind of foolish, wildly hubristic individual who doesn't appreciate this wonderful harmony, these completed, perfected, uh, finely balanced works of, of nature. So I think the place to start... Uh, is by taking evolutionary biology seriously, and I've been an aided in doing this because the philosophy department of which I'm a, a member is rated number one <laughs> in philosophy of biology, and so right. I have excellent colleagues uh, and graduate students who have uh, very generously uh, engaged in extensive and intensive tutoring uh, to bring me up to speed on knowing what I needed to know about the basics of evolutionary theory in order to approach the enhancement issues in a more informed way.
0: Right. And so uh, that's excellent. Um, So let me sort of raise what I take to be a a kind of second plank uh, in your diagnosis or a second move, one that's not, it seems to me, um, dependent on uh, the, 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 The stance you take with respect to um uh the 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 relevance of evolutionary biology um so it seems to me that one of the the other moves that that you make is um uh to argue that um the anti-enhancements uh uh of views fail to consider Uh, The possibility, uh, and, and in many cases, it looks to me like an obvious actuality that enhancement might be necessary in order to preserve the status quo now it seems to me that that's a that's a powerful argument because if you're right about the um what drives uh the, the sort of naive view of biology that drives uh some of the anti-enhancement views that sort of don't mess with mother nature things are uh in in some sense as they should be and so any intervention um is is going to uh, uh be a, some involve some kind of moral loss or at least moral risk it seems to me that it's really important and a very crucial aspect of your argument against the anti-enhancement view, that there are all kinds of respects in which if we do nothing, if we don't, as it were, mess with mother nature, um, things are going to get worse. uh, And that um, in all kinds of respects, uh, the kinds of enhancements that you're talking about, even the more radical forms of enhancement might be required in order to preserve or to keep pace with uh, where we are.
1: Yes, uh, that's right. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's a a distinctive Message that I'm adding to the enhancement debate. The anti-enhancement people think of the pursuit of enhancement as the pursuit of improvement relative to the status quo, and actually more in a more extreme way. uh, Sandel thinks of the pursuit of enhancement as the pursuit of perfection. He says at one point that enhancement. What's really wrong with enhancement is not the risk of unintended bad consequences. It's that enhancement represents the Promethean drive for mastery. Now, I think this is just obviously false. There may be some people who would pursue some enhancements in some context, of which it would be correct to say that they're striving for perfection. But in many cases, if you're pursuing an enhancement, you're just pursuing an improvement of some existing capacity, an improvement, not a perfection, uh, for example, when I had LASIK surgery on my eyes, uh, to my surprise, my physician asked me if I wanted 20/20 vision or a little better. Right, you mentioned this in the book. I opted for a little, little better, um, and uh, but I wasn't opting for perfection. I, I had no delusions that I could have perfect vision, whatever that would be. I'm not even sure it makes sense to talk about perfect vision. There's right. good vision for different tasks. So the f- the first mistake is that uh, some anti-enhancement people confuse the pursuit of enhancement with the pursuit of perfection. But then if they're uh, uh, more reasonable than that and say, well, it's the pursuit of improvement relative to the status quo, it may not be. There may be some cases where we need to enhance a particular capacity just in order to prevent our situation from getting worse. And here I I have recourse to a favorite quote of mine from one of my favorite novels, The Leopard by Lampidesa. Right. The Leopard is a wonderful book about what the meaning of conservatism is, about how hard it is to be a conservative, to know what to do if you are a conservative. And at one point uh, in the book, there's a wonderful statement by one of the characters, Grady who says, "If things are going to stay the same, things will have to change." Right. <laughs> and that may in fact be the case. I mean, it's been true in the past that human beings or our pre-human ancestors had to change in order to prevent their situation from getting worse. They had to adapt to some new environmental problem. Well, presumably we'll have to do that in the future. And in some cases, we may be able to adapt more successfully if we can use biomedical technologies to enhance some of our capacities. So it's just a mistake to say that enhancement is only valuable Uh, For the sake of improvement relative to the status quo, might turn out to be necessary just to preserve what we value most, to to prevent us from from getting into a much worse situation. And after all, we produce problems for ourselves in the process of solving other problems. This is the history of human beings, and uh, we've we've done a number of things to mess up our environment, for example. And it may be that in in some cases in the future, in order to cope with problems we've already created, we may have to modify our capacities. So I think that's uh, another blow against the anti-enhancement position. It's not just that they're wrong in rejecting enhancement across the board, but there's a sense in which they don't really even understand enhancements. They limit the value of enhancements to improvements relative to the status quo. That's a fundamental mistake. And once you realize that it's a mistake, it changes the whole character Of the enhancement debate.
0: Right. Um, And may even, uh, in uh, in fact, logically force. Uh, anti-enhancement or certain versions of the anti-enhancement view to embrace certain kinds of enhancements. Because after all, the, what drives the anti-enhancement view is the status quo is exactly as it should be. Well, then if you can show that enhancement is necessary to preserve that, then it's hard for them to have any, uh, you know, point to any ground on which they resist those kinds of enhancements. Um, That's exactly right. By
1: the way, let, let me just interject here. Uh, at a, uh, uh, a conference on enhancement at Harvard a few years ago, uh, the very astute philosopher Francis Kahn, uh asked Sandel if he uh, uh, would approve of an enhancement pill which would make people more appreciative of what they have which would <laughs> enhance their capacity to accept the, the unbidden uh, to accept the giftedness of their current condition which mm. Sandel's always going on about and uh, Sandel that admitted that he was stomped on that, that he would have to get back to her. I think it's been uh, years. I don't think he has gotten back to her on that, but uh, that's Fred. another illustration of how it might be that uh, from a conservative standpoint, the standpoint of somebody who wants to preserve what we have, like our character, for example, if you think right. character is worth preserving, I have some doubts about that myself right. as a generalization, but uh, it might be necessary to enhance some capacity in order to, preserve the kind of virtuous character that Sandel thinks is imperiled by the prospect of enhancement.
0: Right. I had a, I I should just mention that the the story about Francis Cam was uh, wonderful. I had a a course with her many, many years ago uh, and I could just, uh, you know, she's such a sharp mind and precisely that way I could just actually hear that question uh, in my own mind uh, coming out of her mouth in a way. Um, But let me, um, let me try for a moment now uh to play devil's advocate uh, well, I, well with all due respect uh you know michael sandel is not the devil but um let me uh, just try to say something or try to uh try out a response on behalf of sandel uh and, and just see your reaction cuz I, I wonder whether um uh your um uh criticisms of sandel um might not be missing at least uh, uh, an element of uh, maybe a crucial element of, of, of what's driving uh, his version of the anti-enhancement view. Now, let me preface this by saying that, you know, the claim that enhancement debases us or somehow tarnishes our character, um, the, the point that uh, all enhancement is really a manifestation of some very disreputable drive for perfection rather than just a drive for making things better um, some of the the language that Sandel uses the drive to mastery the unbidden the 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 the, the recognition of the gift um I, i'll i'll grant uh that all of this is problematic and, and I, I don't want to uh, uh defend any uh, any of that at this point but um and, and here's the devil's advocacy um maybe Sandel has a point uh, at least in the following respect maybe what he's concerned about is that enhancement technology, uh, especially of the biomedical sort, or so the more uh, 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 high-tech kind, brings under the scope of human control a range of phenomena that were largely outside of our control. And maybe the next thought is that, I mean, that seems to me uh, almost definitionally true right that's what an enhancement is but maybe the next thought is that with increased control come all kinds of increased modes of responsibility more opportunities for wrongdoing uh more opportunities for um uh uh, uh, uh hurt, you know setting people's life chances back um and so maybe what drives the sandel view is the is the thought that um the attempt to take control over things that we previously didn't have control over um, reveals some kind of vice that is reveal some kind of uh, 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 um, maybe pathological interest in uh, uh, leaving nothing to chance.
1: I think, I think you're onto something uh, I would, I would sort of separate two things. I was with you completely until the last. <laughs> I think it's, it's certainly true that whenever we extend the range of, Control over anything, or ourselves, or our environment, then we get new responsibilities. Because uh, if we're able to control outcomes, then uh, if there are bad outcomes and we can avoid them, at least as a prima facie case, that we should try to avoid them. So we can come to have new responsibilities as our power uh, increases. Now, I think uh, this has been the story for a very long time, and I think that in uh, most cases, there are burdens that come with responsibility. Uh, uh, responsibilities, if you discharge them, that, that requires cost of some kind to, to you or to someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's uh, a consideration. Uh, and you can get it wrong. Uh, you can fail to fulfill your responsibilities properly. But when you think about human progress, often it's involved an expansion of the realm of control. And if you think about something like the modern welfare state and not even necessarily a very robust one, but uh, the assumption is that uh, within limits, poverty and lack of access to education and restrictions on opportunity due to uh, serious medical problems, that these are now things over which we can exert some control And that we have obligations and that ultimately the obligation should be discharged, at least in part, through the operation of the modern state. Now, in the past, before the rise of the modern state, I think in many cases, people just didn't even think of things like poverty as being something that could be greatly reduced or eliminated by human actions. And partly it was because they didn't understand the origins of poverty. But partly uh, it was because they were right. There just wasn't the institutional capacity to take the kind of coordinated action necessary to make a significant impact on poverty. So it's it's true that once we expand our powers, we have new responsibilities. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. And it doesn't necessarily exhibit any kind of vice of, of the pursuit of excessive or unlimited Mastery. Now, I think that there is a, there is such a vice, um, and in in the book, I talk about uh, there's a chapter in which I look at, at character concerns that worries about whether uh, the availability of biomedical enhancements will somehow corrupt us, exacerbate whatever character flaws we have, or some of us have. And I think that's Sandel's unique contribution uh, is that he's focused on character concerns. I just don't think he gets it right. Uh, As I've said, I don't think that uh, the desire to exert more control in a certain area necessarily means you have an unlimited uh, desire for total control. And there's a passage in in Sandel where he says, you know, if we go down this route of biomedical enhancements, then the ultimate end of this is a situation in which we have nothing to contemplate but our own will. And I find this to be a bizarre thing to say because even if we had. Many more biomedical enhancements, and they were much more effective than I think they're ever likely to be. There would still be vast areas of human existence which were not within human control. Right. Uh, there would still be unpredictable wars, there would be swings of the market, people would train for jobs which disappear. People would be uh, would unexpectedly fall in love with inappropriate people. Parents <laughs> would try to raise their children one way and they would turn out just the opposite. Uh, there would still be the weather, natural catastrophes. I don't think we're, you know, there's any prospect of a lack of control shortage in human life. And yet Sandel talks as if there is and that biomedical enhancement is pushing us toward this dire shortage. Now, I think that I, I mentioned, I think there is a vice of, of you know, trying to exert excessive control. And again, I sometimes find works of literature to be the best illustration of this in Stendhal's uh, novel the red and the black the main character Julian Sorel is somebody who is constantly trying to control everything he's trying to operate in the strategic calculating mode all the time and the results are disastrous and the author makes it very clear that this is not the way a human being should live it doesn't leave room for spontaneity for one thing uh, it it uh, shows a kind of delusory, uh, idea that you can control everything, but also it doesn't appreciate the cost of constantly trying to control things. You mentioned one cost. That is we get greater responsibilities and responsibility to birds, but there are other costs too, including the loss of spontaneity. So I, I think it's quite true to say that if we had a, a really wide menu of powerful biomedical enhancements to choose from, that Uh, All of us may run some risk of overdoing it and of getting too involved in trying to exert more and more control and missing out on enjoying what we already have, missing out on spontaneity, failing to appreciate the the, the benefits of some things not being under control. (laughs) Uh, And it might be that some people would, would not just run this risk, but the risk would be realized and they would. Uh, lead very bad lives, and this would be facilitated by the availability of biomedical technologies. But of course, there are people like that who already lead very bad lives right. uh, through through other uh, modes of indulging this vice of of striving for excessive control. Now, here's where we come to the point that I made earlier. There's a difference between a consideration against enhancement and an argument against it. Right. And I think that uh, it, it is a valid concern to worry about whether. People may overdo the enhancement enterprise and thereby lose some important goods like spontaneity and uh, uh, like not always being in the future oriented calculating mood, mode, but being in the present, being able to appreciate what you have. I think that's important. And I stress that in the chapter that I referred to. But it's a huge leap from saying that to saying that we should reject enhancements across the board. Because they represent the drive for mastery, right? Uh, I mean, look—if uh, there's a problem with the drive for mastery, and I think there is, it doesn't just apply to biomedical enhancement; it applies to all technologies. It really applies to all human action directed toward gaining some kind of control over ourselves or over the environment.
0: Right, and. Um, it- Fascinating. I mean, this, this seems to, to me to, to, to strike the, the, the right notes, um, uh, but let's move on now uh, if we can. Um, I, I think that there's, let me just say, uh, I think that there is a further sort of move open to Sandow Um uh because i take it that what drives his set of concerns and maybe you're right at the end of the day this is not a case against enhancement it's really sandel offering a set of uh uh warnings uh, uh about uh enhancement or a set of concerns as you put it but um maybe the comp- maybe the situation gets a little bit more or further complicated when we're talking about enhancements that some group of people are are choosing to introduce into the lives of others um and uh so i take it that part of what drives him is the sort of designer baby kinds of concerns i don't know uh how uh how plausible that is a description of what the technology is capable of but uh i take it that that's Sort of the choosing for others or the chooser the, the the trying to be in control of uh, uh, uh the conditions of others' lives is yes uh, is an intra- is is a worry of his uh maybe things get 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 more uh, complicated but uh oh, I, think they do.
1: I I think they do and um i think uh obviously it's one thing to choose to try to uh enhance yourself it's another to choose for somebody who can give no consent to it like your offspring. Right. I think that does raise different kinds of issues, but I think Sandel, again, is overly broad. He tends to talk about parents who would uh, want biomedical enhancements for their children as if they are all sort of super competitive, perfectionistic people whose only uh, desire for the enhancement for their children is to make their children more somehow competitive against other children. I think that's an unfairly unflattering picture. I think that if you look at other kinds of enhancements, like cognitive enhancements, I mean, uh, Sandel teaches at Harvard. Lots of people send their children to Harvard. Uh, not primarily because they want them to beat other children in competitions and certainly not because they think it will make them perfect, but simply because they value the kind of cognitive enhancement that uh, Harvard education can give. Uh, there are cases of hyper parenting, of, of uh, excessive desire for mastery or perfection on the part of parents, but I think it would be a mistake to overgeneralize from that and say we ought to reject the enhancement enterprise entirely, because that overlooks the, the possibly great benefits that we might get from enhancement. And also, it overlooks the possibility that uh, some people under the right circumstances may handle enhancements reasonably well. And it's not clear to me why they should be penalized for uh, the fact that some other people won't handle enhancements right. well. Part. right so, so this
0: um this this gives us a, a um uh, a, a nice segue into um uh, one of the, the 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 other sort of main uh moves uh more in the positive direction of laying out your own view where you do take very seriously what we might think of as not the character concerns about enhancement but the justice concerns about enhancement right um so could you could you tell us a little bit about this? Because uh, you have both, again, a diagnostic move um, with the anti-enhancement views. They tend to see enhancements always in these competitive terms, always a zero sum mm-hmm. um, and uh, always as uh, uh, not only initially expensive but uh, forever expensive and available only to uh, the wealthy. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the justice dimension of the uh, enhancement debate?
1: Yes, well, I do take the problems of justice very seriously. Um, I was a first author of a book called From Chance to Choice that appeared in, in uh, 2000, uh, which uh, is devoted to, to questions of, of justice as they're raised by biomedical technologies, especially ones involving uh, genetics uh, in, in one way or another. I, I, so I think that's a, a really serious issue. Uh, but I think that the current enhancement debate has really misframed the issue to a large extent, especially on the side of the anti enhancement people. They tend to view the uh, benefits that would be derived from biomedical enhancements as purely personal goods. That is, the benefit only redounds to the person who gets the enhancement. And they tend to view them as zero sum. That is, if you get an enhancement and I don't, the benefit that you get from the enhancement is going to be offset by a dis- corresponding disadvantage to me because I don't have the enhancement. So the first assumption they make is that it, that biomedical enhancements will be purely personal and zero sum goods. The second assumption, as you mentioned, is that they will be very, very expensive. Uh, and so if you put these two assumptions together, you get a pretty unfavorable picture from the standpoint of distributive justice Some people, people who are already better off in other ways, will have access to enhancements. And the benefits they get will actually worsen the condition of those who are already worse off, uh, so worse off that they couldn't afford the enhancements. That's a pretty grim view. Uh, Now, it's not clear if that view were true, what follows from it. Some people just sort of throw up their hands and say, well, we should reject enhancements. I think that's unrealistic. As you said earlier, we already have enhancements there's going to be powerful forces in favor of developing more of them. So uh, I just think, you know, just say no isn't a good answer. But I also think the diagnosis is wrong. Uh, Certainly there are circumstances in which enhancements would have this zero some aspect, but there are others in which they won't. And uh, I think focusing on cognitive enhancements is a good way to appreciate this point. And also I think cognitive enhancements, especially through the use of, of drugs, cognitive enhancement drugs, are probably the most uh, realistic prospect for significant biomedical enhancements for the foreseeable future, not things like genetically engineering embryos. Cognitive enhancement drugs or biomedical cognitive enhancements like other cognitive enhancements tend to have network effects. That is, the more people have them, the more valuable they are to the people that have them. If you are the only person who can read and write uh, the benefit you get from literacy is pretty limited. If there are tens of millions or hundreds of millions of other people who can read and write, then literacy is much more valuable to you. Similarly with having a computer, if you're the only person who has a computer, you know, you can play solitaire, you can do things like that, but there won't be any Internet because there won't be other people with computers. There won't be any email. So I think cognitive enhancements generally, whether they're biomedical or otherwise, tend to have this feature of having network effects. But also they tend to have uh, another feature that that makes them not uh, 0 sum, and that is they can increase productivity in the broadest sense. They can enable us to do things that we couldn't do before or that would have been too costly for us to want to do. And this can improve everyone's welfare under certain circumstances. Now, I'm not naive. I don't think that increases in human productivity automatically translate into uh, widely distributed increases in human welfare. But I do think it's pretty uncontroversial that major improvements in human welfare over the long historical stretch have usually proceeded on the basis of some increase in productivity and it's not just productivity in sort of an economic sense you know bigger GDP something like that uh, or bigger GDP for less effort expended it's also a richer life uh, it's new kinds of activities that are intrinsically uh, beneficial I mean the the analogy I like to use is between the card game of go fish and bridge right okay? Uh, there are some enjoyments that you can get from playing Go Fish, but if you're able to play bridge, you're not going to find Go Fish to be very satisfying. Uh, it's not very demanding, uh, and the, the pleasures of it are correspondingly much more limited. It might turn out that in the distant future, if human beings are very cognitively enhanced, that they'll look at a lot of our social interactions in the way that you and I if we can play bridge, look at people who are just playing go fish. I'll say, well, you know, that's sort of sad that they weren't capable of these much more intrinsically rewarding activities that we're capable of. And that's quite apart from the economic benefits, the welfare benefits of having uh, large numbers of cognitively enhanced people. Here's another analogy. You can think of the scientific community as A group of cognitively enhanced individuals they have better epistemic rules they have better uh, practices for assessing evidence than the average person does and as a result they're able to produce all sorts of benefits many of which the the rest of us can enjoy uh, that they couldn't if they didn't have this kind of collective cognitive enhancement So that's the first point, is that we shouldn't think of uh, enhancements, especially cognitive enhancements, which are likely to be the most important ones to the foreseeable future, as purely personal goods, zero sum. They'll have wider social benefits, and uh, they'll have network effects, at least in many cases. The other assumption people make is that biomedical enhancements are going to be uh, very expensive, and they tacitly assume they're going to remain expensive. Take the case of cognitive enhancement drugs. When drugs go off patent and can be produced generically, the price takes a huge dive at Walmart. Now there are, uh, I think over 125 drugs that were formerly patented and very expensive. And you can get a month supply of each of them for $4. Right. Now, if we have safe and effective cognitive enhancement drugs, they go through the patent period, they become generic. There's no reason to think they shouldn't be priced in a similar way. And that means they would be cheaper than getting uh, a cup of coffee at Starbucks every day for a month. <laughs> so I think it's a mistake to think that the the prices are going to remain high, these things are going to remain unaffordable. We you think of other technologies like cell phones, when cell phones were first developed, I think most people thought they were going to be sort of expensive toys for the better off. Right. And the proliferation of cell phones has been fantastic beyond what anyone dreamed. Now there are are poor, illiterate peasants in you know rural Pakistan who are organizing their economic activity using cell phones and also organizing politically. So it's not always true that new technologies are or remain expensive. And also whether they remain expensive is partly up to us. It's not a fact of nature. It has to do primarily with what the character of our intellectual property rules are. And in one chapter of the book, I look at some possibilities for coping with the problem of unaffordability that's due to monopoly pricing by patent holders. So again, I think the the conversation has been, uh, it starts out in the right way. It doesn't go far enough. It makes uh, problematic assumptions about the nature of these goods, and it simply takes unaffordability as a permanent fact, and as something that's not uh, amenable to some modification by the right kind of social policy.
0: Right. So this provides a good uh, occasion um, to ask you about these. Uh, rules of thumb for managing the risks. So I take it that, um, one way to sort of summarize, uh, your view, uh, in better than human is to say that, um, uh, it makes no sense. Uh, 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 in a way to, to be pro or con enhancement enhancement is a fact that uh, we're going to have to contend with or that we have to contend with now and uh, your argument against the anti-enhancement view is that it's got a naive uh, um, in, maybe in the most general sense it's got a naive understanding of where we are uh, as if you could just be anti-enhancement and I take it that the positive message is the enhancements are here and um, Some of the considerations that get raised by the anti-enhancement crowd uh, are serious considerations, but they don't rise to the level of objections uh, as such. And so the philosopher's job is to think of ways to manage the risks that we're taking on uh, in light of this fact uh, of enhancement. And so one of the, the, the nice uh, moments in the book uh, comes uh, sort of like halfway through it right around uh, page 96, where you, you give us uh, seven sort of rules of thumb uh, by which we may um, uh, uh, sort of manage some of these risks. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, I will. Uh, let me first say that there are really sort of two paths that I take for trying to provide guidance for coping with the risk. Uh, one is what you just mentioned. And in particular, these rules of thumb or cautionary heuristics are for what I take to be the most problematic cases of biomedical enhancement, namely uh, genetically altering human embryos. And I'll get to those in a moment. Uh, the reason I, I chose those as the ones which I for which I developed these heuristics is that that's the toughest case. If you can uh, provide some reasonable cautionary uh principles for that very tough case and uh, presumably other cases, biomedical enhancement will look uh, like they're even more amenable to reasonable risk management. But the other strategy that I take for providing uh, a way of coping with the very real risks of biomedical enhancement is with this idea of the enhancement enterprise. Right. So I'd like to contrast two different ways that uh, we might go Uh, For the fork in the road as we move into the age of biomedical enhancements. One is the route that the anti enhancement people want us to take, and that is at least to sort of try to reject biomedical enhancements across the board and to view the pursuit of biomedical enhancements as illegitimate. And what this would mean in practice would be, uh, for example, if we notice that college students are using. Uh, drugs off-label for cognitive enhancement purposes, drugs that, that weren't developed for that purpose then we make this uh, illegal, we try to put teeth into sanctions uh, against it uh, we uh, uh, describe these people as uh, as vicious, as exhibiting vices etc. Now I don't think that's uh, well-founded ethically for reasons I've already described, I also think it would be uh, futile. It, it's not likely to work. It's just uh, would drive the activity further underground, uh, raise prices in the way that prices have been raised by making a number of, of recreational drugs illegal. And of course, that would just exacerbate whatever distributive justice problems there are, right? I mean, right. about unaffordability, the first thing to do, if you really want to to make it unaffordable, is to declare it illegal and Uh, the kind of activity that we shouldn't approve of in society, et cetera. The other path is to uh, reject the blanket anti-enhancement view and say that enhancement can be a legitimate pursuit, that it can even be admirable under certain certain circumstances. But instead of just letting enhancements in through the back door as under-the-table spinoffs from developments of treatment the way they've been so far, you recognize enhancement itself as a legitimate activity. And then, say, in the case of cognitive enhancement drugs being used by students, you allow drug companies to produce cognitive enhancement drugs as such, and you develop double-blind clinical studies of longitudinal sort, sort that really tell us whether these drugs are safe and how effective they are for whom. You can't do that if you've branded the whole enhancement enterprise as somehow illegitimate and unseemly and driven it underground. So I think paradoxically, if you're really worried about problems with enhancement, the first thing you should do is reject the anti-enhancement position, recognize that enhancement is not only inevitably here, but that it can be done in ways that are quite respectable and then bring it into the public sphere and try to manage and regulate it appropriately right it, it should become an object of public policy and it should be viewed as as something that's happening it's going to happen that it can have some good effects but that it also has some risk and then it can be in a position where we can make decisions about how important investment is in biomedical enhancement technologies relative to other social goods. If we continue to let it in through the back door, it may become quite a powerful force in society, and it may draw off a lot of resources from other potentially more valuable or equally valuable investments. But there really won't be any way to cope with that, whereas if it's brought out of the open, we can at least have a chance for deliberative democracy, about which you've written a lot, (laughs) to work and to say well what are the trade-offs here you know how much should we be investing in these technologies compared to technologies for preventing or treating disease or for education or for uh cleaning up the environment so i think our best prospect is uh if you're really worried about risk is to bring this thing out in the light of day and make it an object of of public policy and of reasonable risk management. But the other more specific strategy is the one that you mentioned. That is, if you take the, the toughest case, the case where it looks like the risk might be the greatest, a particular mode of biomedical enhancement, namely genetically altering embryos for the sake of enhancement, the first thing to ask is, well, how should you frame the risk issue? And I think the, the, the way to frame it is to think that the risk are the risks that are involved in ontogeny. That is in the sequence of events from the the conceptus through the development of the embryo to when the individual is born and then the, the process of development unfolds. And that means we have to look at it scientifically and we have to ask before we even start thinking about cautionary heuristics, We have to ask what the state of our knowledge is about those ontogenic causal processes. And we need to know whether our limited knowledge is likely to expand. And if it's likely to expand, then there won't be one permanent set of cautionary heuristics. In other words, you need cautionary heuristics that are knowledge sensitive, both in the sense that they really take seriously the limitations of our current knowledge, but they're also capable of Uh, being modified or replaced with other cautionary heuristics as our knowledge increases and presumably an appropriate set of heuristics shouldn't be knowledge blocking. It shouldn't be something that prevents us from getting greater knowledge, which if we achieve it would make it more reasonable to engage in certain interventions. So if I may, I'll just give an example of some of the cautionary heuristics again that would apply to this very particular dramatic biomedical enhancement of trying to genetically alter. Please, please. I'll just read a couple of them. First, the intervention should target genes at shallower ontogenic depths, or to use a different aquatic metaphor, genes that get switched on further downstream in the developmental cascade. This makes sense because the consequences of the mistake in the case of a gene that doesn't work upstream in the process nearer the beginning, it's likely to have greater ill effects. Upstream errors have a cascading effect. So other things being equal, we should avoid interventions upstream. Right. Here's the second one. The intervention, if successful, wouldn't produce an enhancement that exceeds greatly the upper limit of the current normal distribution of the trade in question. Suppose the trade is intelligence as measured by IQs tests. If some people already have IQs of 140 and looks like they're doing okay, then we're on safer ground making a genetic change that will result in an individual who would have an IQ of who would have had an IQ of 120 having one of 140 instead. Then we would be in making a change that results in an individual with an IQ of 240, which is higher than anybody has ever had. Now, eventually, we might gain enough knowledge that we could make interventions that would target enhancements that would go above the normal range. But at least at the beginning, this would make sense. Here are two other quick uh, uh, readings of cautionary heuristics. The intervention's effects are limited to the organism in which the intervention is performed. This is important, but relatively easy to accomplish in the case of mammals like us. One of the big worries about genetically modified crops is that modified seeds can escape from experimental plots. Fortunately, human eggs, sperm and embryos aren't like that. They don't get blown around by the wind and they can't hitchhike on the fur of passing animals or in the digestive systems of birds. Another cautionary heuristic. The intervention's effects stay compartmentalized within the organism. In other words, the intervention modifies a highly modularized system or subsystem. This reduces the chance of unintended spillover effects. Further, one one last crucial cautionary heuristic. The intervention's effects are reversible. Right. If this condition is satisfied, ongoing damage can be avoided. Reversing bad unintended efforts eff- effects would be accomplished in a number of different ways. By drugs that counteract the effects of gene expression or stop the gene from expressing in the first place. Those are two examples
0: right right well this is um uh a uh, really really fascinating stuff alan and um we could i'm sure uh continue talking for 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 uh the rest of the day maybe um but you've been very very generous with your time already um uh we've been uh talking for 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 uh quite some time so let me just ask uh, a final question if i may um uh what's your next project what are you working on now
1: well, I I've always work on too many things. At uh, one time, I'm sort of intellectually promiscuous, but uh, I'm continuing to work right now on on two main things. One is thinking more about human rights and about human rights institutions and their legitimacy, or otherwise. And the other is this project uh, that I call social moral epistemology. Mm-hmm. Social epistemology, as you know, is the comparative study of alternative institutions and practices, so far as they influence the formation. Uh, and transmission and preservation of true beliefs and social moral epistemology focuses on how social practices and institutions influence those of our beliefs that are especially critical for our moral functioning for our making good moral judgments moral arguments having the right moral principles having the virtues and i've been working on this for a number of years i've written probably seven or eight articles on it but mm-hmm. i'm trying to really uh, get down to the, the difficult part and uh, writing a book which will be systematic uh, in its presentation of, of this topic. And I was stimulated really to do this uh, by a couple of things. One was my own upbringing in uh, Jim Crow South. Uh, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas and at a certain point, just through moral luck, I realized that all of the people that I trusted, my parents and uh, my pastor and government officials and teachers had been filling my little head with, with a systematically distorted views about race, right? right. And so, uh, you know, I just saw this this huge apparatus for instilling morally damaging false beliefs. And then the second thing that prompted me was reading Jonathan Glover's wonderful book, Humanity, A Moral History of the 20th Century, where he makes the case that a a, a Primary task for ethicists is to try to understand the massive wrongdoings of the 20th century, the genocides, the world wars, and then say something constructive about how to reduce the risk that this kind of thing will continue to happen. And I think part of the strategy for reducing the risk is to understand social moral epistemology.
0: Right. Right. Well, um, that project on social epistemology is uh, uh, particularly uh, of interest to me, given some of my own interests. So I will definitely look forward to that. And maybe uh, uh, w- when some of that work uh, comes out, we will invite you back to, to talk to us uh, uh, about it on new books in philosophy. Um, but for now, let me, again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, the book is um, better than human. Uh, thank you so much, Alan Buchanan, for, for talking to me about, about your book. Thank you, Bob. And
1: thank you for a really astute interview. Uh, you're very well informed. I've had lots of interviews on this subject, and some of them have, uh, have been, uh, haven't have compared at all to yours. <laughs> well, I appreciate
0: that. Thanks. Have a good day now.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Professor Alan Buchanan of Duke University. We've been talking about his new book, Better Than Human, published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.